So as I understand it, you know, you're in Berlin and you're engaging in some, you know, very German pastimes, one of which was uh, seeing the artist Bob Dylan, the the German singer-songwriter who you've not seen uh, anywhere else. Do I have that right? (laughs) That's right. I did see Bob Dylan. Bob and I happened to be in Germany at the same time. Uh, Did he call? Did he write? Did he text? No, but nevertheless. Somehow, somehow those Twitter replies you did saying, yo, yo, you in town as well? Uh, Somehow, I mean, he just, he must have missed those. You know, he doesn't check Twitter that often. And yet he did post about being in Berlin, which just goes to show it's almost as if he he doesn't care if I find out or not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really quite insulting. Can I can I just say uh, before we continue talking about our mutual friend Bob Dylan, uh, there's a type of character that Will has introduced me to, and there are many such people who fit this archetype who are basically reply guys, but like a special kind of high level form of reply guy where it's to like directors and actors and stuff like that. But it's like a type of person who, I don't know, might once a year get to have like a 15 minute thing on a festival circuit or something where they, I don't know, get to ask like Quentin Tarantino a question in a group like one of those group interviews, like a scrum, and then they just think that they're like friends with Quentin Tarantino after, and so they'll do like Twitter, I mean, I don't know if he has Twitter, but you know, that type of person, and they'll do Twitter replies where it's like, oh, hey, didn't realize you were in town, Uh, you know, could have gotten together for a coffee, and it's like, I don't know, I feel that uh, it's not even fair to the other reply guys to call these guys reply guys, because this is just in it, this is a whole other category. Yeah, this is a real Rupert Pupkin type. This is a a category of person, Uh, I don't know, let's just call them uh, uh, Jason Gorber or Jason Gorber like people. <laughs> They're in media and they interview people, but then they just like reply to the people on Twitter as if they're friends. Wow. So Will is in Berlin and he is tearing down the wall. He's naming names. So I did see Bob Dylan this week. Yeah, it was, I think, my fifth time seeing him in concert. And, you know, I do this thing oftentimes where I'll say to my partner, like, oh, well, there was only one ticket available, but it was in the front row. It's too expensive. I can't go. Which is basically my passive aggressive way of saying, can I buy a front row ticket? And that always puts the burden on her to say, oh, you should buy the front row ticket. Go do it. But you only live once. Buy a front row ticket. It's fine. He'll be dead soon. You should do it. So that's exactly what I did. I paid an absurd amount of money to see Bob Dylan in the front row, uh, which was great because, you know, every time he would get up from his piano and he would do a little like a hunched little strut around the stage, you know, all five foot three of them would do a little hunched strut around the stage and he'd be wearing this kind of Steven Seagal like outfit. I was closer to him than I've ever been. And I had opportunity to sort of contemplate, oh, my God, this is the man. This is the man who went electric. This is the man who was on the Rolling Thunder review. This is the guy from Don't Look Back. And it was especially great whenever he would get up because whenever he was seated at the piano, he had a Kleenex box on top of his piano that covered his face for pretty much the entire time. So there I am in this ludicrously expensive front row seat, you know, eager to see my hero up close. And I can kind of see his hair. You know, well, when you say you're you're up close and and personal with Bob Dylan, I mean, what you really mean is that 
you have a particularly like high res view of the shadow cast on his face by whatever hat he's wearing because Bob Dylan isn't just, you know, an enigma in terms of the interviews he gives and things like that. But I mean, you know, if you've ever, I've never seen a Paul McCartney concert, but you know, apparently Paul McCartney is like, he's like the exact opposite of Bob Dylan. He's constantly making jokes. He's constantly talking to the audience. Like he's a real performer in that way. Dylan is the exact opposite of that. He's a very private performer. He often sits at the piano, doesn't really speak that much to the audience. And when he does, it's like a huge event. Some people hate this, but if you go to enough Bob Dylan concerts, you're familiar enough with them, you know, it really becomes a part of it. And you find that he's he's being generous to uh, the audience just in, in different ways, really. Yeah, I mean, when people who aren't fans of Bob Dylan listen to us talk about him, they probably think we're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, the way that we describe it. But but really, I'm quite serious when I say that the pleasure of the Dylan concert is that you don't know what you're going to get. When you get the familiar things, when you get the hits, you get them in a completely different way, like you've never heard it before. It's always exciting to see, well, what what hits from the archives is he going to pull out? He did uh, You Go Your Way, I Go Mine. And the way he, oh. he did this incredible version where he's saying, You go your way, and I go mine. <laughs> <laughs> right. So just completely butchering like the cadence and intonation of the original, which is like, the, I mean, that line, which is the title of the song is also like the hook in the chorus. And he's just doing it completely differently. But he also did a really, I thought, rollicking version of Gotta Serve Somebody, you know, one of the lead tracks on Slow Train Coming, as well as an interesting version of Paint My Masterpiece as well as just a lot of like stuff from the recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I'm fortunate I've listened to Rough and Rowdy Ways a lot. So I greeted all of his lines from that from that album, like, uh, I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones, and like those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. You know, I, I greeted all of those with an interior cheer. <laughs> well, for me, my, my best uh, Bob Dylan concert memory, and to those listening, you know, I know there's, uh, should we say, a, a sliver of our audience that isn't particularly fond of when their esteemed co-hosts go down this particular rabbit hole. But I'll just share my favorite Dylan concert memory, which, you know, actually wasn't an example of him, you know, butchering or, or you know, re recomposing, uh, recapitulating one of his classics. But but it was in Toronto in 2007 when he played, you know, a show that was, uh, you know, very characteristic. A lot of classic songs that, you know, you didn't pick up until the second verse that he was playing like a Rolling Stone or whatever. And then inexplicably, uh, he starts playing Tangled Up in Blue, which is exact and it's exactly the same as the album version. Um, it's the, basically the same arrangement. And now Tangled Up in Blue is, I think, not only one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. I mean, it's one of my favorite songs. It's I mean, Bob only Bob Dylan could basically fit a great novel into, you know, six and a half minutes or whatever it is. And when you listen to all the different versions of it, you know, there's the, the version recorded on the earlier version of Blood on the Tracks, which is the album where it finally appears. The verses are largely the same, but then the person that, you know, the character who's speaking them seems to be uh, kind of different. And there's all, there's all kinds of different uh, versions of the song that give you cause to think about it. And the song itself, even on the album version, seems to jump around. I mean, you almost, you, f you feel like by the time you get to the last verse, the character singing it is somebody else. You feel that you're jumping around in time and place. I mean, it's just an absolutely remarkable song. And uh, Dylan, for reasons that, I mean, are, are knowable only to him, decided to give it to us pretty much exactly like on the album version. And it was uh, it was really special. Yeah, I think my favorite memory was when I saw him in 2014 
the encore was blowing in the wind, which surprised me because I really didn't think he uh, fucked with that 60s shit that much anymore. (laughs) But he did this version of it that sounded, it had almost like an Irish lilt to it. It was, you know, how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. It was kind of like that. Um, and I thought it was just really beautiful. Okay, but imagine not the uh, the honeyed tones of my voice, but the ragged, uh, sandpapery sound of late period Bob Dylan doing that arrangement. Yeah, if, if Will was Art Garfunkel just now, Dylan sounded closer to Tom Waits. <laughs> Well, uh, listeners to the Michael and Us podcast, of course, know Luke and myself as the real heroes. But what if I told you that there are three heroes even more real than us? That's right. Their names are Spencer Stone, Alex Scarlatos, and Anthony Sadler. And they are the protagonists of Clint Eastwood's 2018 film, The 1517 to Paris. is a, a very unusual film which uh, which Will told me about as I mean I think you know both of us enjoy Clint Eastwood but Will is a real Clint Eastwood scholar you know most recently you wrote about Cry Macho which is you know another one of these very kind of strange late period Eastwood things that you know you had a lot to say about and I have to say I mean this is a movie that was not well received I think it's probably pretty unfashionable to like it but not knowing much about it uh, before I sat down I enjoyed it quite a bit and uh, I actually thought it was very affecting. And I think another example of why Clint Eastwood is one of the only good conservative filmmakers working in Hollywood today. Yeah, it's interesting. This movie has a 23% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. But I know that it has become a real cult object for a lot of people interested in film. Many of my friends really enjoy this movie. Well, first, I remember when we had John Semley on the podcast to talk about American Sniper all those years ago, we recorded that episode the week this movie came out. And he I remember on that episode, he was telling us about this movie. uh, And he gave it four stars in the Globe and Mail. He was very compelled by sort of the things that it was doing, you know, mixing documentary and fiction. And I remember seeing this movie, you know, a couple days after it came out with a friend of mine. And for the first 30 minutes, we thought, oh, my God, you know, Clint Eastwood was 87 at the time. We thought this guy has completely lost it. But then there came a point about halfway through when I started to think, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Like if if this if this isn't (laughs) if if this is crazy, I don't want to be sane, whatever this is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I do actually, I think it's a good movie, but it's also a movie with just many bizarre artistic decisions. So, well, by way of getting into the film, maybe you can give the listeners a sense of, you know, what this movie is doing, what it's about. I think all of that will be a necessary platform to uh, kind of getting into any kind of political reading or for just discussing the, uh, I don't know, shimmering strangeness of uh, 1517 to Paris. Well, Spencer Stone, Alex Scarlatos, and 
Anthony Sadler were three less than distinguished veterans of the United States Armed Forces who, in 2015, foiled a terrorist attack on a train that was traveling from Amsterdam to Paris. Uh, This was an actual event that happened. It turned them into media celebrities. You know, they were on the Jimmy Kimmel show. They got the Legion of Honor in France. And the following year, Clint Eastwood optioned the rights to their hastily published memoir. Now, thematically, this movie fits very neatly into a run of four late-career Clint Eastwood movies. American Sniper, Sully, Richard Jewell, and this film, they're all true stories of ordinary people who are flung into heroism. But the unusual selling point of this movie is that Eastwood decided to cast the three guys as themselves, despite the fact they had no acting experience. There's one interview you can see on YouTube that's kind of part of the movie's official publicity, where he says, I've looked at a lot of actors, good actors too, but I kept looking at the guys and I kept looking at their faces. And finally one day I just said, do you guys think you could play yourself? And the more they thought about it, the more they got with it. And it turned out that they had a lot of natural gift. And it also was a bit of a catharsis for them to go back and relive the moment. It's interesting to hear him say that. Eastwood is one of those filmmakers who, I think he is a more instinctive filmmaker than he is an intellectual filmmaker. I'm not sure he would have a great answer for exactly why he made this decision. But the movie itself, it's pretty cleanly divided into three acts. The first act is about the boy's upbringing, Uh, where they're played by child actors. The center act is them trying to find a place in the modern world, you know, first through a variety of jobs, then through the armed forces. And the third act is their long, long vacation in Europe that climaxes with the terrorist attack on the train. Yeah, and again, you know, this film was not very well received. Matt Zoller cites from RogerEbert.com gave it two out of four. Um, He said a good 70% of uh, the film is inert. It's affable nothingness redeemed only by a laid-back charisma of three men. He praised the film's poker face sincerity and its uh, superb climactic train scene. Um, So I guess that's sort of a more middling review, but a lot of the reviews were pretty negative. A.O. Scott of the New York Times was much more positive. He wrote, Eastwood's workmanlike absorption in the task at hand is precisely what makes this movie fascinating as well as moving. Its radical plainness is tinged with mystery. And I think that's uh, more or less how I received it as well. I mean, if you sit down to watch this film and, you know, you kind of don't know what to expect. I mean, the first thing that'll strike you is, you know, the acting is not, for the most part, conventionally good. You know, even the professional actors, I think, in the film, perhaps by design, are acting in a kind of somewhat uh, unconventional way. But I think the charm of this film, for me, partly comes from how much of it is occupied by banality. I mean, the whole film builds up to this incident, which lasts about 10 minutes. And the emotional power of the incident and the, you know, the meaning of the incident, this incident on the train, comes from everything you see around it. It comes from having spent so much time with these characters and kind of knowing what they've been through, or rather haven't been through, because their lives are, you know, fairly banal and boring and they're full of everyday disappointments and frustrations. And all of those things, I think, you know, in the first two acts really make the third one uh, much more powerful and affecting. And I have to say, by the end of the film, I was uh, I was quite moved. 
So the first third of the movie is about the boys' early lives. We follow them through their childhood. Now, for some reason, uh, you know, this is the section that employs a lot of professional actors, in some cases, name actors. And for some reason, they largely cast comic actors or actors known for comedy in dramatic roles. Judy Greer and Jenna Fisher. The Jen- Jenna Fisher. <laughs> I mean, Jenna, Jenna Fisher, Pam from The Office is in this movie. They play the bo- two of the boys' mothers. Tony Hale from Arrested Development is the gym teacher. Thomas Lennon is the principal. And greatest of all, Jaleel White, better known as Steve Urkel, plays the history teacher in one of my favorite scenes of the movie where he where he tells them about FDR. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I, I mean, I this scene, you know, I, that was one of my favorite scenes of the movie too. But would you, would you believe, I didn't notice that was Jaleel White. And this just gives it like, I don't know, like an extra bit of like fairy dust or something. Uh, I mean, so this scene is absolutely incredible. Um, in the first act of the film, uh, you know, we're introduced to these three boys. And I mean, you know, they're, they're basically lower middle class suburban kids. Uh, they're going to a Christian, I guess not a high school. I think it's a middle school. They are, you know, fairly normal boys who have normal problems that I think by and large are, you know, looked upon by most of the teachers and by a lot of the authority figures in their lives as like, okay, these, you know, these boys are, they're already, you know, they're in grade six or seven or whatever. And they're already like, these boys are going to be failures. Like there's a scene where, uh, where they're playing basketball, like they're in gym class, two of them and they end up just like running very slightly afoul of the gym teacher and he just is kind of like shrugging and sardonically being like okay well I guess you know time to go to the principal's office again like off you go they're just sort of being set up for failure it feels like and I don't know there's maybe a bit of Eastwood's libertarian streak that comes out through this I mean there's a scene quite early on you know where two of them who are being raised by single mothers played by Jenna Fisher and Judy Greer respectively you know they go to talk to uh, one of the teachers and she's talking about how you know they have ADHD and things like that and they need to be medicated and it actually reminds me a lot of the scene in The Sopranos where Tony and Carmela are talking to the school psychiatrist and he's he's saying, well, you know, Anthony Jr. is a borderline case. You know, uh, we think, you know, he might have something, you know, he, he fidgets, for example. And Tony Soprano just says, you mean like he fidgets? There's a similar exchange in this movie where, you know, the complaint is that they they look out, they're looking out the window. And I think Jenna Fisher says, were you saying that the other boys, like the other kids, like don't look out the window? So this is kind of the environment that they're raised in. And then you see this scene with Jaleel White, who's the, the school history teacher. And I mean, this is, again, one of those things that, I mean, on the surface, this is kind of a bit of a hacky scene. Uh, but I found it very, uh, I found it very moving because it's perhaps the sole example um, in this first First act of the movie of kind of positive reinforcement that you see from an authority figure. What are these boys interested in? Well, I mean, they go to a Christian middle school. I mean, I think it's in Sacramento, but they're sort of being raised in, I mean, it's a Christian school, so more along the lines of what you might think of as kind of red state values, I would say. So they're interested in guns. They're interested in war. They don't have a lot of meaning in their lives, and so they gravitate towards uh, those kinds of things. You know, there's a scene where they're in the woods kind of playing with their toy guns or something. 
something and one of them says, you know, oh, I love war. It's so interesting. You know, the history, the brotherhood, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they're in this uh, they're in this scene where uh, the teacher who I now know was played by Jaleel White. Incredible. He's teaching them about FDR and the New Deal. And he says something to the effect of, you know, FDR, he, he knew exactly what to do at the right time. He had to make very, very quick decisions. And, you know, the the world around him was was changed because he made those decisions, you know, and he, he acted quickly when the time came, you know, when and imagine Pearl Harbor was a terrorist on a train. Well, what would you do <laughs> if if that happened? Well, you know, I don't know if he's actually talking about Pearl Harbor, because I think he is specifically talking about the New Deal, which given <laughs> given uh, Eastwood's libertarian streak is a little bit strange. But yeah, he basically says, uh, you know, when the time comes for you uh, in your lives, you know, uh, would you would you step up? And then later, as they're leaving class, you know, he gives them, uh, you know, they're interested in war and instead of kind of telling them that they're stupid and they should go to the principal's office he's printed them out some uh, some old war- world war ii battle plans so he's gonna let them you know look at overnight and i don't know i just found this quite affecting in a way i mean i didn't go to a suburban middle school actually in fact didn't even go to a middle school uh, it, we didn't have middle school in the country where i grew up it was just kind of one one school until you got to high school but you know there were uh, there were a lot of kids who uh i don't know didn't really fit in you know boys especially you know uh, uh, younger boys who teachers would be incredibly condescending to or many of the teachers would be and then you would see just these teachers you know uh, I can think of a few examples at my two high schools as well teachers who had a different approach and just if somebody was kind of weird and they didn't conform to you know the kind of uh, generally accepted definition of normalcy you know at the school instead of treating them like shit and instead of trying to bend them around whatever you know this definition of normalcy was they just like figured out okay well this kid's into weird stuff so how can we validate that and like celebrate it as an interest as opposed to like something that's deviant and has to be stamped out and so I was thinking of a number of pretty special teachers that I knew growing up who were kind of like this character the first third of the movie develops these boys kind of as classic Eastwood heroes you know they're nonconformists they're outsiders they're constantly running up against know nothing pencil pushing bureaucrats in their school but then in act two when they're adults the boys try to make a go of it in the real world and it's pretty much an unending string of disappointments and failures alex scarlatos is in a mind-numbing data analysis class exquisitely spencer stone is working at jamba juice they're both dreaming of perhaps joining the armed forces you know there was a time when clint eastwood's movies looked very good the outlaw Josie Wales or Unforgiven are very beautifully photographed movies. Uh, he was 87 when this movie came out, and even he's not immune to the passage of time. So his movies have become, I think, much simpler looking out of necessity. But I think form and content are in harmony in a movie like this, because one of the things I value most about the last decade of Eastwood's career is that his movies really show you what America actually looks like. If you look at this movie or The Mule or Richard Jewell, you see strip malls and discount hotel rooms and rundown legion halls and just ugly little plazas with big box stores. And, you know, you may not like Clint Eastwood for his politics, but there are very few filmmakers who show the America that you see when you actually drive through it in a road trip. And I feel like uh, to add to that, Clint Eastwood has a kind of deep, I mean, again, 
again, this is a kind of comment. I feel like this comment's pretty unfashionable, but I'm going to make it nonetheless. I mean, I, I think he has pretty deep insight into masculinity and to American masculinity, especially. I think this movie depicts very well how life is for a lot of fairly ordinary young men who start out with, you know, a bit of bad luck uh, that causes them to fall behind. I think it shows a trajectory uh, that's been one a lot of people have experienced, not just men, of course, over the past 30 or 40 years, due to, among other things, the decline of manufacturing work, where now it's like, you know, just go learn to code instead, or, you know, yeah, work at the suburban strip mall, whatever it is. And so when that happens, there's only uh, so many things you can do. And one of them is to kind of cling to like, guns, God, and the flag, you know? <laughs> and that's what these guys do, basically. And, you know, you can do that and hope it yields something, hope it, uh, hope you can find, you know, some kind of meaning in it. And uh, you can wait around for some kind of smidgen of good luck, uh, some kind of, you know, big score. And you can hope that whatever comes your way, uh, you rise to the occasion. But there's not, a, there's not else a lot that you have to work with. Uh, you're dealt a pretty bad hand. And I mean, this film, I guess, came out in 2018. But one of the things it made me think of was sort of where, I don't know, American liberalism was sort of at circa maybe 2015, 2016 in the sort of, you know, Clintonite 2.0 incarnation. We were incessantly told it felt like that actually appealing to these people was bad. You know, appealing to affluent suburban people, that's fine. Those are our people. But, you know, people that don't live on the coasts, uh, live in areas that were hollowed out by, you know, NAFTA and things like that, or live in the types of suburbs where 30 or 40 years ago, there would have been many more well-paying jobs available than there are today. All of this was really, really bad. And acknowledging, you know, the desperation, kind of quiet desperation of places like this, you know, this was actually a, a really dangerous impulse that needed to be uh, reined in. There was something I saw this week, actually, that was a bit of a throwback. Uh, there was some kind of conference going on or something. I mean, I think it was at the the Cato Institute, which is a right-wing institute. And, uh, you know, there, were, there, there was at least one pretty senior ex-Obama person speaking at whatever this was. Uh, the, the comment I'm thinking of was by a guy called Adam Posen, who's the head of something called um, the Peterson Institute, which uh, in one place was called uh, the locker room of the team globalization and free trade cheering squad. Now, the comment that this guy made was uh, that he said that the focus on domestic manufacturing is simply, quote, a fetish for keeping white males with low education in the powerful positions they were in. And, you know, Bhaskar Sankara quote tweeted this and he said, you know, this is what the new anti-worker language sounds like. And, uh, you know, I think that's exactly right. So much to me of that sort of, you know, very faddish 2015, 2016 sort of Hillary Clinton liberalism. I mean, it really, really kind of came and went. But so much of it, I think, was really about creating a, a socially acceptable language to look down on uh, certain parts of the country, certain groups of people, and to kind of shift the conversation away from, uh, yeah, any kind of pro-worker or program of redistribution or anything like that, which we were, I think, pretty explicitly told was uh, problematic. Now, I don't want to be too didactic in talking about this movie. I mean, this this is a film which, you know, for a Clint Eastwood film, I would say is, is you know, fairly minimal in its direct political agenda. But watching this movie and uh, getting to know these guys, I did find myself uh, in many points feeling on their side and feeling pretty, uh, pretty angry and frustrated thinking about the kind of, you know, scorn and contempt that various parts of the American political spectrum are kind of want to heap on uh, people from this kind of background with, uh, with these kinds of values. And I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not saying uh, these guys are secretly like, 
you know, the, the, the seed of the revolution or something like that. Um, but I think they are sympathetic characters. And I think this film and kind of just portraying the, you know, the quiet desperation of, of much of their lives and sort of just the, the banality of it and the kind of constant, mostly thwarted quest to find purpose and meaning. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's quite profound. The movie doesn't have a directly stated didactic political agenda, but one of the things that makes it such an unusual movie is that it's free of most of the frills and niceties that movies typically have to tell you what to think. I mean, this movie gives you a lot of very loaded imagery, but it doesn't give you music to direct your emotions. It doesn't give you a really traditional story with scenes that work in the traditional ways. It doesn't give you the sort of catharsis or the music that tells you when something triumphant has happened or when characters are ridiculous or when characters are heroic. A a lot of scenes just play to deathly silence. It's just unusual that a movie gives you all of these parts while doing so little of the work of assembling them itself. Anyway, as I mentioned, uh, we see Spencer and Alec trying to make a go of it in the working world, and both of them end up training for the armed forces. Alec makes it all the way to Afghanistan. Uh, Spencer does basic training to get into the Air Force. We get this training montage. This is one of the film cliches that the movie actually does use. We get a training montage of him, you know, taking his vitamins and running around the field and losing weight, you know, checking the scale. And then at the end of this training montage, he's disqualified from the Air Force because of his lack of depth perception. Absolutely tragic. Yeah, this is absolutely devastating. I mean, he does absolutely everything right. He's a guy who has kind of quietly fucked up and just struggled with basic things throughout a lot of his life. And here he decides, you know, he wants to do parachute training or whatever it is, because, you know, the impulse seems to be he wants to kind of do like search and rescue or something, or at least that was uh, what I got. He he, He wants to help people at least, you know, as he understands it. Uh, And he does absolutely everything right. He does, you know, all the tests. He completely changes his body. He spends a year, you know, losing like 35 pounds, getting into really good shape. And then uh, not only does he fail, but I mean, the scene in which he's he's told that uh, he hasn't qualified is so devastating because... This is how a lot of failure in life really is. Failure, you know, we often think about it, it's often depicted as something kind of grand and heroic, right? And in this, he's just at a line at some, you know, fucking god-awful, like, you know, suburban, like, army office or something, you know, probably sandwiched between a Dollarama and a Church of Scientology or something. And he's just told, oh, yeah, you know, there's some kind of bored clerk or something in fatigues behind the counter, and basically sort of just hands him his papers and sort of says, okay, well, pick three, uh, you know, in in order priority, which things you'd like to do. And he looks at the paper and he's like, oh, no, but I I passed everything. Why haven't I qualified for for parachute training? And the guy just kind of boredly a bit agitated, you know, why are you even bothering with this? Looks back at the paper and just kind of uh, getting more agitated and frustrated and annoyed, just sort of says, oh, well, you know, you didn't have, you know, the depth perception or whatever. And there's no, like, not even basic kind of customer service, right? Not even, oh, I'm sorry, man, that's that's really rough. Sometimes they do that. And in fact, Clint Eastwood, as director, doesn't even give that basic customer service. He doesn't give tragic music to underline how devastating this is. It's just, it's nothing. It plays out in deathly silence. Yeah, because that's how this stuff really is. And the fact is, like, if he had put music over it, this would not have had the same impact. The, the sort of just banal pain of this scene was really striking. There's something just 
karmically and cosmically so unfair about this character being denied uh, this thing that he's worked towards so hard. You know, for the first time in his life, he's tried at something and just for the dumbest reason, you know, something that's completely beyond his control, he's not able to do it. Uh, devastating. So Spencer Stone takes a less exciting Air Force position somewhere else on some station abroad. Kind of banal failure continues in the next couple scenes. We see him being late for a training drill and being humiliated in front of the class having to do push-ups. We see another training drill where he attempts to do a little bit of heroism, you know, standing next to the door during during a drill with a pen as if a terrorist is going to come in and he's going to like attack the terrorist. Yeah, I mean, there's a false alarm, like everyone hides under their desk because they think that, you know, this base they're on, which is, you know, basically like a glorified school that's only a base because it's you know, because it's the United States Army, but you know they're basically they're they're in they're in absolutely no danger. And there's a false alarm where there's like, oh, it's an active shooter on campus. Everyone for about thirty seconds is really freaked out. Yeah, he goes over the door as Will says. You know, he's got a pen. You know, he's like, all right, here we go. Just just like uh, Jaleel White said, I'm gonna be a proverbial FDR here and <laughs> save the day by stabbing the shooter in the neck with a pen when he bursts through the door. And you know, yeah, there's no danger. Uh, and he just you know he just gets uh, he just gets kind of playfully made fun of by the teacher, which again, in its own way is quietly pretty devastating. Now, the last act of the movie begins with Spencer setting up a couple of Skype calls with his friends, Anthony and Alec, in a brutally protracted Skype sequence. Uh, Alec is (laughs) is going to Berlin, where I am now. So Alec and Anthony decide to go to Rome and then meet up with them in Berlin after and then maybe hit up Amsterdam, maybe hit up Paris as well. A boy's backpacking trip through Europe. And so this boy's trip comprises much of the last third of the movie. This section of the movie has some of the most inexplicable scenes. I really love this movie when Spencer and Anthony are just looking at the Roman Colosseum. And the camera becomes shakier. And I think maybe Clint is there with a GoPro just following them through the Roman Colosseum. I would like to see the documentary about the making of this movie as Clint just follows these guys around having a a vacation. It sounds like a lot of their dialogue is improvised. Like they go to the Colosseum and one of them says, a lot of old shit here, that's for sure. Uh, in Venice, they're, they're looking at some ruins and one of them says, man, you don't see stuff like this at home. My, fa- my actual favorite scene in the movie, a scene that's become legendary among fans of the movie is where Spencer and Anthony and this young woman they befriend go to this gelato place in Venice. And there's about a minute where they're just ordering gelato and you know spencer saying grazie grazie they're saying oh i'll have the hazelnut i remember when i was watching this movie in a theater my my buddy whispered to me this is the film of a free man just just (laughs) superficially a dead minute watching these guys order gelato documentary style And then finally, they meet up with Alec in Berlin. There's a great scene, by the way, where they go to the, I'm curious your opinion on this one, where they go to the Führen bunker. That's right, the bunker where Hitler killed himself, uh, where the tour guide is is showing them the area. And Anthony says, but wait a minute, I thought Hitler killed himself in the eagle's nest with American forces closing in. And the guide says, no, your American textbooks are wrong by about 700 kilometers. Hitler was here with his wife, Eva, and it was the Russians who were closing in. You Americans can't take credit every time evil is defeated, yeah? I, I enjoyed <laughs> I enjoyed getting this dialogue exchange in a movie by noted Republican filmmaker Clint Eastwood. 
Well, and you know what else I like about this is is the character's reaction to it because these are like U.S. Army guys and you'd kind of almost expect, you know, particularly given who the filmmaker is, kind of almost expect them to be like, you know, offended and to sort of not really believe it. And instead, they actually just kind of like shrug and laugh. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, maybe uh, we actually don't know everything. And I believe, well, you know, quite accidentally, you actually uh, visited this site just in the past few days yourself. <laughs> I, I was at the Furen Bunker literally yesterday. I was on my way to the memorial for the murdered Jews of Europe, which was just down the street. And, um, you know, I did a double take because I saw I saw the sign. Oh, my God, it's Hitler's bunker. It's not a particularly well advertised site because um, I think when they made the designation, they were concerned that it would become a pilgrimage site for neo-Nazis. So it's not particularly well marked. But I, I was just where Spencer and Anthony stood yesterday. Well, to digress on that for a second, a film that I'm keen to discuss on this show sometime is that remarkable German film, uh, Downfall, much of which takes place inside that very bunker, which shows kind of the last days of the Third Reich as it's kind of crumbling, as the Americans and Brits are closing in on one side and the Russians are closing in much closer, as the tour guide would remind us, on the other side. And you get to see kind of the, the true believers of the Third Reich just in, in kind of their final days, including Hitler himself. Uh, this is a film which has kind of made its way into the popular culture, basically as kind of a meme, because it's the film from, you know, the famous kind of like, I don't know, Hitler getting mad uh, meme. That's where it comes from. For those who haven't seen it, it's a pretty interesting film, and I'd, I'd love to discuss it sometime. The Europe vacation section climaxes where the boys go to a club, and there's a wonderful, you know, three or four minute sequence where, again, I, I can only imagine that Clint Eastwood with a GoPro camera in hand just followed them into the club and partied with them for a couple hours, and this was the footage he got. All of these Europe vacation scenes, I mean, in the negative critical reception to the movie, these are the scenes that were widely criticized as being padding or filler, but I don't know, I think they're quite sweet. There's something very beautiful in just the kind of expansive nothingness of them. And that club scene in particular, it's almost as if Clint in his old age just wanted to capture beauty. And this is his idea of what beauty is. You know, Monet had his water lilies and Clint has uh, <laughs> these these American bozos partying at this club in Rome. And and I don't know, the, the fact the movie just pauses and, and relishes that is quite sweet and wonderful, I think. Now, there are a number of scenes during this kind of European sojourn portion of the movie where Spencer uh, is kind of going off on these little monologues where, you know, his friends are kind of making fun of him about how, you know, I just feel like, uh, you know, I feel like something big's coming down, you know, coming down the pike for me. I so got some bad feelings in my head. Uh, one day a real rain will come and wash the scum <laughs> from the streets. <laughs> well, not quite, but he's, you know, he's, if you were going to criticize this film for laying it on a little bit thickly, you might do so here. But again, because it all kind of happens against the backdrop of these scenes that sort of yeah go on for a little bit too long you know like ordering gelato just kind of walking around various european sites this sort of thing didn't bother me and there's sort of a further a further thing i mean this young woman they meet in venice is saying she's just been to paris and she's kind of advising them oh you know don't really bother it's not you know i didn't have a, the best time there i don't know maybe you guys will have a better time and so they're not even sure they're going to go to paris um and then you know they decide to get on the train having actually only gone to amsterdam because somebody else recommended it so there's so many fates kind of piled on top of other fates you know leading up to the climactic moment of the film 
even the uh, the carriage that they end up getting in. I mean, they they help an old man get onto a particular carriage and then end up switching to another one just because they're not very comfortable. You know, they move up. I think they decide to sort of upgrade to first class or perhaps even I couldn't really figure out if they were just like deciding, well, there's room in first class. So we're going to sit up there and, uh, you know, pray that no one tells us to move. But so because of all of these things, they happen to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time three guys who have military training and are not as squeamish about, you know, the sight of a gun as some of the other people might be. There's another fellow on the train who intervenes and he actually gets the Kalashnikov off the guy who's, you know, we later find out is carrying 300 rounds of ammunition. You know, another another guy who's uh, very heroic in his own way, but he doesn't realize his assailant actually has a handgun as well. And so he gets shot in the back. Spencer has basic medical training, so he knows what to do with a gunshot wound, and that becomes uh, an important part of the story as well. Something else that happens as this is unfolding is that the handgun actually jams as the guy is about to shoot him. Now, I looked into this, and apparently this was investigated afterwards, and this type of jam on this particular gun is almost unheard of. The odds were deemed to be less than one in a thousand. So again, just the fates piled on top of fates here. Spencer also gets uh, pretty badly wounded during this fight because the guy has a knife as well, cuts him on the back of the neck, slices his finger pretty badly. All of it, though, only lasts about 10 or 15 minutes. They get to the uh, the train station in Paris where their police and uh, an emergency response team is on site. Almost everyone in that car were in the actual car when this attack took place, including the guy who gets shot uh, was the actual guy who got shot. It was also filmed on an actual moving train. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. It's a remarkable artistic decision, whatever you make of it. Also, the the attack scene is quite a bravura piece of filmmaking. I mean, the movie really like snaps into focus during that scene. It, it's excellently staged and edited, very tense and exciting. And it's particularly remarkable coming after, you know, 30 minutes of rather baggy, meandering filmmaking, you know? Yeah, just the, and just like watching a bunch of guys carry out like the most normy, like, you know, Americans in Europe. Europe type of vacation ever. Let's get some snacks. Snack car at 12 o'clock. That's my favorite line. <laughs> but yes, this this final scene, which is which is also remarkable. Right. So in this final scene, because Clint has cast the actual guys, uh, he's just able to use the footage of this ceremony. So these three guys, the main characters in the movie, and a number of others who were on the train and acted heroically as well, were given the Legion of Honor by President Francois Hollande. So Lon gives this kind of strangely eloquent tribute to a sort of, um, you know, universal heroism, which, you know, at this particular moment was stripped of any, you know, nationality or particularity. And which, you know, as he says, I'm sure uh, rightly kind of, you know, captured the attention of people uh, all around the world. And because you've spent, you know, I don't know, 90 minutes uh, just following these guys around in mostly pretty boring and banal spaces, watching them just have ordinary bad luck. I mean, not even kind of profound or heroic or romantic bad luck, just everyday quotidian bad luck watching them at kind of jamba juices and suburban strip malls and, you know, Christian middle school in Sacramento and these kinds of things. Uh, I, this scene I just thought was uh, incredibly uh, powerful. This is a film which I guess 
broadly speaking, you might say is kind of small C conservative in the sense that, I, you know, the characters, these are military guys, despite being from Sacramento, certainly don't come from a sort of, you know, liberalish uh, milieu or anything like that, not a blue state one. But uh, I found this scene uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful. I would just add, I think it's funny that in the context of this movie and in the context of these guys' life stories, this terrorist attack was good news. Like, this is them winning the lottery. Spencer mentions at a couple points in the movie that he feels he's being shuttled towards some kind of destiny. You know, Jaleel White is saying, when when your opportunity, he's basically saying, uh, M&Ms lose yourself, you know? You've only got one <laughs> shot. Don't miss your chance. <laughs> um, well, of course, and he, he was quoting from the famous FDR speech in 1933 when, you know, FDR said, this is our chance to blow. And then he did the New Deal. And he and he mentioned Mackay Pfeiffer, who uh, wasn't born for another uh, 40 years or whatever. But yes, like this is the this is these guys shot. This is the triumphant moment. Maybe they'd be back working at Jamba Juice again. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that these guys probably aren't like the seeds of the revolution. And I will say that uh, you'll be interested to know that Alex Scarlatos ran as a Republican to represent Ohio's fourth congressional district in the House of Representatives in 2020. And uh, you'll be further thrilled to know that he's running again this year in the 2022 House elections. So <laughs> I wonder what he thinks about QAnon. <laughs> I wonder. I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just pushing us or something like some greater purpose I guess uh, in conclusion, I want to say I really enjoyed this uh, very strange and, and unusual film that you picked out for us on this one. It makes me want to watch, uh, you know, some more Clint Eastwood. I mean, perhaps we can, for our next Clint Eastwood film on this show, we can find something that is a little more politically didactic, a little more perhaps openly reactionary and, and, and see where that goes. I guess a question I want to put to you as we go out is something that's very strange watching a film like this or kind of any late period Clint Eastwood thing uh, to me is just contemplating the fact that, you know, Clint Eastwood, in 2012, I mean, went to the RNC and spoke to a chair in one of the weirdest things I've ever seen broadcast on TV, is still somehow able to make a film like this, or just is able to make real films at all. And I don't know, I, do you have any thoughts on that? Are you able to explain it? What does Clint Eastwood's late period as a filmmaker mean to you, and how should we think about it? Well, I think human beings are multifaceted, and he's no exception. I mean, he is a very rich and coddled man. When a guy like that gets on stage at the Republican National Convention and says, hey, maybe it'd be funny if I just improvise a speech to a chair, nobody's going to tell him no because nobody has told him no for 50 years. Uh, Did, didn't Clint Eastwood once uh, decide to like, there was some property issue that he was mad about and he like ran for mayor of a town or something just so that he could like change the zoning? What was that incident? That's correct. He was the uh, mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, where he lives to this day, I believe. <laughs> a, a small town in California. And I can't remember exactly what the issue was, but it was a zoning law. Uh, you know, he served two years and he made, I think, two movies while he was doing it. I did read a very funny interview with him that was from an old issue of Cahiers du Cinema, where they interviewed him about his political work. And I thought, you know, this, this is when the auteur theory goes too far. <laughs>
But anyway, getting back to how he can still make movies like this, I mean, he is a man from another time. He is one of our last living and certainly one of our last active guys from the studio system. He grew up studying, you know, John Ford and Howard Hawks and Bud Bedeker and all the old war horses of the studio system who really knew how to tell a story. He really internalized a certain kind of storytelling. I mentioned earlier that he seems to be a very instinctive artist, and he seems to just be very instinctively drawn to, I mean, the the question that gets him interested in scripts are, you know, what's an interesting story? And this rather earnest interest in just interesting stories, I think, uh, might be at the root of why he seems so politically flexible in his art. Good stories have conflict. Good stories have nuance. If you make a lot of movies like Dirty Harry or you make a lot of movies where you're a cowboy, uh, I think eventually you're going to be interested in a movie like uh, Tightrope or some of the other ones that uh, subverted his image a little more. If you've been immersed in the Western genre for so long, you're going to be interested in a story like Unforgiven, especially as you start developing stories that are more tailored to your star persona as you grow older. And I get the sense that he doesn't think of himself as a political filmmaker. Obviously, he's drawn to stories that he's interested in, and sometimes that means he's drawn to stories like Dirty Harry that maybe play to certain political biases that he has, but that's not first and foremost what he is. And how he can still make movies at, uh, you know, 90 whatever he is now, I think he's 92. I mean, (laughs) it's an interesting question. And it's one that I would love to know more about. I would love to know exactly what is demanded of him when he makes a movie like Cry Macho, which he was 90 or 91 when it was shot. I mean, being a director is a very physically demanding job. And I'm just very curious what's demanded of him. The movies have become more stylistically pared down in the last few years. They've they've increasingly started to look like the movies of an older man. But I do think they are of a continuum with a style that he's been developing in his directorial work, you know, ever since the 70s. They've always been quieter, more contemplative movies when he's directed them. And these later ones, uh, I particularly value some of the ones that he's made in the last few years because they feel like this, this kind of final distillation of this style. Well, Clint, if you're listening, uh, come on Michael and us and... And let's hash it out, for God's sake. <laughs> I just look around sometimes and I'll look at Mr. Eastwood like across the room and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm standing here playing myself in a Clint Eastwood movie about my life. It's kind of like living it twice. We've experienced something amazing. So it's coming full circle. We get to relive two years ago how we were. So it's cool to see how far we've came in between. The whole thing has just been kind of mind-blowing for me. To be referred to as heroes is kind of a trip. And to be honest, we're just incredibly grateful that we survived that day. It was just kind of acting on impulse and God watching out for us or something because we made it out alive. It was their experience. I mean, I knew what I wanted to shoot, but the adventure was for real. It was their story because it was real life.